Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome, everyone. Hello, my name is Chris Marquis, and I'm a professor at Cornell's Business School. And I really want to welcome you to this live SubChina CEO webinar recording of the China Corner Office podcast, which is a show focused on the leaders and companies doing business in China. Today's webinar is in partnership with the U.S.-China Business Council, the USCBC, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization representing over 250 companies doing business in China, American companies, of course, that is. Um, and our topic today is the Biden administration's China strategy covering the current situation and future prospects. While the administration recently released its long-awaited strategic review of U.S.-China trade relationships, many questions still remain, and particularly how the different pieces fit together, you know, relationships with Congress, and there's a number of important events coming up which definitely play into the larger relationship. Very much looking forward to digging into these issues with our two wise and distinguished guests. Craig Allen is with us, and he is the president of the USCBC, and so works with many leading U.S. companies on their China strategies. And Craig has a very long and distinguished career in U.S. public service, particularly regarding commercial relations. And also from the USCBC with us is Anna Ashton, who is the vice president of government affairs at USCBC, where she's responsible for developing and implementing the USCBC advocacy strategy on behalf of member companies. Craig and Anna, welcome to China Corner Office. Thanks so much. Thank you. Good to be here. Great. Well, I think first, you know, I'd love to start with a little bit of the big picture. You know, the Biden administration is relatively slowly rolling out its China strategy. Uh, and Anna, if we could start with you, maybe, you know, what do we know about the Biden policy now that we didn't know before? Sure. So I think, Chris, you know, we know and have known that there are a couple of key pillars, at least, uh, well, one that applies to the China strategy writ large for the Biden administration, and one that applies, I guess, most specifically to trade. So one key pillar is 
the Biden administration is determined to take a multilateral approach wherever possible, build alliances with our trading partners and allies to address common challenges with China. And we've seen efforts on that front that I know that Craig is going to talk about in a minute. On the trade side, they have repeatedly stated that they are going to be pursuing a worker-centric trade policy. So putting workers first and We see that sort of reflected in what has been announced so far about the U.S.-China trade strategy. But I guess another key thing to mention here is that while we know that there are these two pillars, and we also have spent much of the year awaiting a big rollout of the grand strategy that will be the Biden administration's approach to China, it has become increasingly clear that it's unlikely to be rolled out all at once. Mm -hmm. We may end up with a grand strategy, but it's probably going to come out in pieces. And one of the major pieces that we've been waiting for all year that happened or began to happen early this month is the trade policy piece. So USTR Ambassador Catherine Tai gave a speech at the Center for Strategic and International Studies at the beginning of October, and she touched on key things that she plans to do in her engagement with her Chinese counterparts to restart efforts to address trade issues in the relationship. She said they will be discussing phase one commitments and enforcing phase one commitments. She said they would be restarting some sort of targeted tariff exclusion process, and we can get into details about that later. She said that They would be pressing China on its state-centric policies, so structural issues in the relationship that have plagued the trade relationship for many years now. She reiterated that we'll be working with allies, but in many ways, her her speech raised more questions than it answered. I mean, it's good that that we have a statement and we have the beginnings of a re-engagement on trade, but but there are a lot of questions that we still don't have the answers to in terms of what's going to happen with the tariffs and what kind of dialogue is going to be restarted, when it's going to take place, how often, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Well, a lot, lots of details there from worker-centric policy, tariffs, phase one, potentially you know, phase two issues with, with SOEs. And like you mentioned, I think it'd be great to actually dig into each of those areas a little bit more. But before diving into her statement, I, I want to stay a little bit at the big picture and actually turn the floor over to Craig. And there's a lot of big events, so to speak, that are that are upcoming in regards to the relationship. And, you know, one thing that actually just happened yesterday, as you know, is Nicholas Burns had his Senate confirmation hearing about his the ambassadorship. And and Craig, given your sort of senior level perspective in, in the US government, I'd love to hear your reflections on his discussion with the senators and what that might indicate for future relations. Well, terrific. Thank you, Chris. The first thing to note is that when a a nominee is in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, his or her first job is to get approval so as to become an ambassador. And so no surprise that any nominee is going to be very gracious and complimentary of uh, the members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Nick Burns uh, did a magnificent job uh, yesterday at representing the administration's policies and also reflecting positively back to the Congress uh, on congressional China initiatives. I think that Nick Burns framed the U.S.-China relationship 
under the Biden administration pretty succinctly when he said, quote unquote, China is the biggest geopolitical test of the 21st century. Those are words that probably would have been comfortable under the Trump administration. And we see that framing of the bilateral relationship uh, continuing. We also heard echoes of Secretary uh, Blinken's dichotomy, compete, cooperate, and then challenge. So the ambassador designate was repeating what the secretary had said uh, there and reaffirming that that is the U.S. position. The ambassador designate did not say a lot about trade. Um, only he gave a little bit of a list of the major issues that will be focused on by the administration, including theft of intellectual property rights, state subsidies, dumping and unfair labor practices, and noted that these hurt American businesses and workers. I would parenthetically note that this is a continued framing of trade in a defensive mode. Mm. In other words, we're not looking at the opportunities of exporting more to China, but rather at defensive mechanisms. I think it's important to also say that there was a lot of talk about the national security challenges faced by the United States with China, including Xinjiang, a lot of talk about Taiwan, which the Congress cares very much about. Mm-hmm. The ambassador-designate spoke glowingly about the bipartisan Senate passage of the Competition and Innovation Act, which I think we'll cover a little bit later. But he also noted that China is not a, an Olympian in his, mm-hmm. in his terms or a monolith. It's not a juggernaut. And China has vulnerabilities as well. And so I really give Nick Burns uh, our finest career diplomat, enormous credit for managing what could have been a very difficult situation very well. He will probably get confirmed by 100 votes without having burned any bridges in the process. Not an easy thing to do. Yeah, wow. Well, thank you for that that assessment and some of the details there. I know having been through this process yourself, you can probably appreciate it like many of us can't. And I think that, you know, one of the things as I read some of the readouts of it that struck me that you mentioned is, you know, this issue of sort of not in some ways overestimating the China threat that actually, you know, while China obviously has some strengths, there's also some uh, weaknesses as well. Another thing that I wanted to to highlight that I think as we talk a little bit more about the congressional work that Anna really focuses a lot on, you know, some of the things that you mentioned in regard to Xinjiang, given that the Biden focus on workers, I think that relates, you know, Taiwan and semiconductors. So I think that, you know, we'll be talking about that in a second, but I still, you know, want to stick with you, Craig, around some sort of bigger picture issues. You know, in some ways I said, you know, there are these various events that are coming up that really, I think, will in some ways let us get some more insight into how these relations will unfold, particularly in regards to commercial relations. So obviously, you know, President Biden and President Xi announced they're going to have a virtual summit coming up. There's the APEC meeting, which there's been a lot written about, you know, also the G20, which 
China won't be attending. And then one of the areas that I focus a lot on is environment issues. And with the COP26 meeting coming up in Scotland, there's a lot of discussion around, is President Xi going to attend? I mean, is it, it, what, what sort of China's position going to be? So given these different events that are coming up in the not-too-distant future, what exactly should we be looking for for various signals about where the U.S.-China relations are going? Right. Thank you, Chris. Yes, the autumn is really the diplomatic season for U.S. and China. And traditionally, the president will meet two or three times over the course of the fall. This year is a little bit different because of COVID and Xi Jinping not traveling out, out of China, we understand, until after the Olympics. But nonetheless, there are a number of very important meetings coming up. The first one is going to be October 31 through November 30, COP26. Mm-hmm. And at least until yesterday, China had not released its nationally determined contributions defining mm-hmm. exactly how China is going to reach its peak of carbon emissions in 2030 and, and net zero in 2060. And there's a lot of devils in those details there. Right. Those are really important issues, and China presumably will be publishing how it's going to withdraw its currently 60% of its electric capacity from coal and reduce that perhaps down to zero. So watch that space. Very important. The second important meeting is the G20, October 30 to 31 in Rome. And I think it's significant that Xi Jinping will not be there. I'm sure the Chinese diplomats will be watching very closely, but uh, does it offer uh, the uh, Europeans and the Americans another opportunity to talk about non-market economies Mm -hmm. and congeal, uh, get this consensus that's developing to congeal further? Watch that space. From the White House's perspective, probably the biggest challenge coming up is APEC, November 10 and 11, President Biden is going to have to give a speech about American trade policy. And that is especially important this year, so about three weeks from now, because the president is going to have to talk about what is the United States trade agenda when we host APEC in 2023, two years from now. And I think that, you know, he's going to be required to put forward an agenda, an economic agenda that is attractive to the APEC community. And what will it be? Now, Xi Jinping will also give a virtual speech at that time. And uh, he's going to talk about TPP, CPTPP. Mm, right. That's very important to the Chinese side. And it is a commitment by the Chinese side towards regional economic integration. All of this is in preparation for the summit. And that will really be a fork in the road uh, for the U.S.-China relationship. Yeah, so many interesting threads to pick up, I mean, given all this events in the fall. I guess the first one, you know, you mentioned with the G20, President Xi not being there, and, you know, perhaps, you know, allow the U.S. and the EU to get together a little bit on its China strategy. You know, one of the things somewhat in relation to that that we saw recently is the first meeting of the uh, TTC, the U.S.-EU Trade and Technology Council. Can you say a little bit? about sort of why that's important and set some context about how that might help shape things moving forward? So the Europeans proposed the US-EU Trade and Technology Council meeting during the transition period. 
And there was silence from the Biden team for a long time until, yes, uh, we agreed to do it. And on September 29 in Pittsburgh, uh, you had very senior leaders, including three U.S. cabinet members, uh, converge in Pittsburgh to meet with their European counterparts. Now, the Trade and Technology Council is not explicitly anti-China. It mentions, however, non-market economies often, and it is very clear that it is addressing what is perceived to be a common challenge shared by the US and EU. Now, there are 10 subcommittees that Mm -hmm. have been formed, and I won't go through them all, but let me focus on the two important ones. The first is an export control subcommittee where the U.S. and the EU are going to exchange information pertaining to high technology and export controls. And how this is exactly is going to work, there's supposed to be secondary meetings because export controls are really a national level Mm -hmm. competency in the EU, not an EU level competency. So the details are, are not known. The other major area of coordination is going to be an investment screening or CFIUS firma type of activities, where at least there's going to be information sharing and maybe beyond that. Again, I'm not clear that that's an EU competency or a national competency, but the fact that the US and EU are coordinating at the cabinet level on these issues, I think is something that is very important. It continues a US-EU-Japan trilateral, and all of this is intertwined Mm -hmm. as a way, as Anna said, that the US is trying to engage its allies to address the challenges of China in a more effective manner. Yeah, interesting. Well, well, thank you, Craig, for going through all that sort of in some ways stage setting. You know, we've had many conversations over the past year or so really looking for the time when the Biden policy coalesces in a way that we can sort of see a way forward. And I think you're describing how things have happened in the very recent past and then also through the fall. Hopefully we'll get to that point. I want to actually go back, though, now to understand a little bit more about you know, the statements that, that Ambassador Tai made in regards to tariffs, in regards to Section 301. And Anne, I would love to, you know, learn a little bit for, from you about that. It seems the tariffs under, under Trump were so, in some ways, uh, complained about by, by U.S. business. There's all kinds of studies, some by the U.S. CBC that we've talked about on this program before, you know, that show that they have negative economic effects. And so it was to some folks, surprising that this is something that's still maintained, although there might be some variation and some sort of light that you can we can see between the two different administrations' policies. So, you know, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on Ambassador Tai's statement, particularly in regards to the tariffs in Section 301. Sure, absolutely, Chris. So, I mean, I guess to start with, yes, the business community has been pretty adamantly opposed to the 301 tariffs from their inception. They were framed as a way of holding China accountable and trying to push China to make changes to its trade practices that would make our trading relationship more fair. But in reality, as the business community continues to point out sort of ad nauseum, uh, these are a, a tax on U.S. companies and the costs associated with them get passed on to consumers as well. Right. So absolutely, businesses in the United States have been struggling with the costs of these tariffs for quite some time now, and we're very much hoping to see some sort of at least limited rollback of the tariffs, which still cover 
two-thirds of all imports from China, and which are very, very high. But I think there was a lot of management of business expectations also before Tai's speech, and it wasn't really surprising to hear Ambassador Tai say that they were not yet rolling back any tariffs. And in fact, she didn't even allude to some future date where they might roll back tariffs. Um, it also wasn't surprising because the Trump administration, when they decided to to use Section 301 for pursuit of their trade agenda, they revived or brought back from the dead almost this domestic U.S. trade tool that hadn't really been used since the WTO. Hmm. And I think that there were a lot of questions around the legality of it and whether or not using 301 is even fully in compliance with our WTO obligations. But at, early on in the Biden administration, kind of quietly, actually, we saw Biden administration attorneys defending vigorously the Trump administration's decision to use 301, the constitutionality of them doing it, the legality of them doing it. And that's that's not surprising because presidents want to retain as many tools as they can to affect their policy goals. And so we've known for some time now that the Biden administration may not pursue the use of 301 more aggressively than the Trump administration and may ultimately decide that this is not a tool that's that's particularly useful for them but they're not they're not ruling it out they're not taking it off the table and they're not even taking these specific tariffs off the table for now with exclusions we were all hoping that there would be an announcement of a significant new start to an exclusion process and we didn't get that either and that i think mm-hmm. was probably the most disappointing piece of of Tai's speech but It needs to be taken in context. She did say that they would be restarting some exclusions in a targeted fashion and that they would look at more exclusions further down the road. But this is a really small percentage. The number of exclusions that they're considering currently restarting is a very small percentage of the exclusions that were previously granted and have expired and also just a fraction of the tariffs that have been put in place. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for that that context. And I think it's, it sounds like there's still, still more to be seen. So again, you know, continuing the stay tuned type of, uh, <laughs> of message that we've been communicating. So, you know, you talked about the exclusions, tariffs, uh, section 301, Anna, you know, how about the phase one, phase two deals? Uh, you know, I've sort of read that, you know, some industries actually there's been some progress, others are lagging, you know, what, do you think is going to happen as far as, as those agreements and any sort of enforcement of areas where China is not meeting its commitments? Sure. So um, Tai Tai emphasized in her speech that a priority for reengagement with, with China on trade issues would be enforcing all of the commitments that China made in the phase one deal that was finalized in early 2020. Or, yeah. And um, it, this reflects something that the business administration not, or that the business community not only wants but has explicitly asked you, USTR to do. Uh, we and a number of other trade associations uh, wrote a letter that we sent to Ambassador Tai not too long ago in August, and and a focus of it was we should enforce and and continue to uphold the Phase One agreement. A big reason why the business community wants the phase one agreement enforced and upheld is because under the Trump administration, it was made clear that unless the phase one agreement was 
was successful, and until the phase one agreement was successful, there could be no phase two or whatever else you might want to call it. There could be no getting back to the table to -hmm. negotiate other issues in the relationship that affect business. Um, So it, it continues to be important to the business community, both that the commitments that were made, um, that there's follow through there, and that that mechanism be used to continue to get to the table with the Chinese, and then ultimately to talk about other outstanding issues in the relationship. So it's a good thing to hear that the administration intends to follow through and enforce phase one. A lot of the enforcement efforts, at least in the speech and in conversations and press coverage afterwards, seem to focus on the purchase agreements and that's a little bit um, right. concerning because fr- from the business community perspective, the purchase agreements are important and they definitely have been important to specific industry sectors in the United States. They were an important piece of getting the deal done, but they're temporary. They, they in some ways are trade distorting because they can divert trade from one country to another in a temporary way that also upsets our other trading partners and to... Most of our, our member companies who are doing business on the ground in China, they're not, they're not the big deal that we want to be addressed in the trade relationship. We really mm-hmm. want to see talk about the structural issues, the systemic challenges, market access, unfair support for state-owned enterprises and domestic companies versus foreign competitors and U.S. companies specifically trying to compete in the China market, those sorts of things. But, you know, they are they are a piece of the agreement, an undeniable focus of the agreement. And I think we're going to see a focus on that going forward. They did also say, though, that they're going to be ensuring that all of the policy commitments get followed through on. And then we've seen other members of the administration reiterate that. So uh, Secretary Vilsack, for instance, pointed out a handful of market access and related issues for the agriculture industry that he is intent on ensuring get uh, those commitments get fully met before we move forward with addressing other issues. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, this idea of sort of, yeah, market access and SOEs, I think, is going to obviously continue to be, you know, a really important sticking point. Another sticking point that relates, uh, you know, to, to what Craig had mentioned earlier about, um, you know, Nicholas Burns's testimony, uh, broadly speaking, you know, the Biden focus on sort of workers, human rights. Uh, and I know that, like, in Congress, there's this Uyghur forced labor uh, potential, you know, act. And and part of this whole story, you know, we've been talking very much about the administration, but also Congress is another obviously really important element. Uh, and can you say a little bit, I'm going to actually st- stick with you, Anna, because I know congressional areas are, are, are one of your areas of expertise. And then I'd love to hear Craig's comments about this as well. So, you know, this is one area where it seems that Congress and Biden administration overlap a decent amount on, you know, labor, human rights, Uyghurs. Uh, what's your sense there for what progress might be able to occur? Well, it definitely is the case that, uh, as we said earlier, and as you just reiterated, that a focus Uh, a pillar of the Biden administration's approach to U.S.-China relations, especially on the trade front, is workers and and being worker-centric in their thinking about how trade should should be conducted, making sure that trade benefits the average American, but not just the average American, but also other people that are involved in in supply chains and trade between the U.S. and China and, and beyond. And so that's where this issue of Uyghur human rights comes in. And it definitely is something, it's an issue where there is some overlap 
in focus between the Biden administration and Congress, and there is overlap with the business community as well. Uh, the business community definitely wants to be a partner in addressing these concerns, wants to be seen as a partner, and, and uh, we have a lot of companies that have a lot of experience remediating these sorts of issues in other markets, experience that they would like to be able to bring to bear to address the issue at hand. But currently, they're feeling a little bit scapegoated as opposed to treated like mm -hmm. a partner. Not so much scapegoated by the Biden administration, but scapegoated by, by some of the legislation that's been proposed in Congress. And the, the big one that you mentioned is the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which would prevent any goods that may have in any way been made with the use of Uyghur forced labor from entering the United States, which sounds completely reasonable on its face, but but the way that it would do it is is sort of the sticking point because in order to to ensure that you can get your goods into the market, you have to meet a, an impossible standard of proof. You have to you have to prove the negative. You have to prove that there is no forced labor right. anywhere in your supply chain, including in the supply chains of suppliers. And, and that can be quite difficult because global supply chains are quite complex these days. It's probably a good action forcing event for companies, not just in the United States, but around the world to improve their practices in terms of supply chain due diligence and knowing all of the all of the steps that are in place and all of the people involved in the goods that they're bringing to market, but it's a hard standard to meet and I think is going to create a lot of complications in an already uh, challenging era for supply chains before everything gets smoothed out because we do expect this legislation to pass. So I guess I can start there, yeah. uh, but but I'm happy yeah, to cover no, other Hill issues yeah. too. Definitely, and I, th I think I would. I do want to get over to the to the hill uh, before before too long. But I'd I'd like to stay on this topic and switch over to Craig a bit. You know, in addition, to, you know, we've talked about the administration. Obviously, we've talked. We're starting to talk and unpack things in the Congress. Uh, but companies are obviously a really important constituency in this as well. In regard to supply chains, as Anna mentioned, I mean, it's really a challenge to, in some ways, prove a negative. You know, no, there's no forced labor in our entire supply chain. I mean, there are various certification processes companies can go through, but it's a really, you know, high bar. I mean, and it, you know, maybe it's what we need. I'm not sure, but I'm just, it's quite a challenge. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit, Craig, from the, you know, more about the companies that, that you all represent, you know, what their position is on this. You know, there's things in the press you read about pressure on companies to boycott the Beijing Olympics because of this issue. So from the corporate perspective, how are companies dealing with this and what's their opinion of this act? Okay, so let me start out with two observations. Firstly, to a large extent, the Chinese government has made it very difficult, if not impossible, to send labor inspectors into Xinjiang as our companies would do anywhere else in China. And so we have certainly encouraged uh, the Chinese government to allow in inspectors into Xinjiang just as they would into Jiangsu or, or uh, you know, Guangdong. And indeed that the Chinese government should fully adhere to ILO or International Labor Organization standards and then allow certification of those standards. The Chinese government recognizes that having forced labor 
in the international supply chain is a problem. They agree that that is not acceptable. The sticking point is that we're not allowed to send in inspectors uh, to certify that there is no forced labor. And uh, I think that, that it would be behoove the Chinese government to allow in more inspectors over time. Second point I would make is that this is not only a U.S. concern. The Europeans are moving very rapidly towards uh, bans on forced labor with Xinjiang as a test case. And so the pr pressure is building. And the sooner uh, we have more transparency, more uh, clarity uh, on this from the Chinese government, the better off everyone will be. I'm not going to pretend the business is in the lead here. There are much larger issues uh, in Xinjiang, but to the extent that the Xinjiang Forced Labor Prevention Act that, that Anna mentioned is important, transparency and appealing to the International Labor Organization as a UN-related body with UN-related standards that the Chinese accept, I think is a, a good way to go. How are companies dealing with it? I think that companies are having to spend a lot more money on compliance and really analyzing their supply chains to ensure that they are able to answer the question that Anna asked. Uh, and that is, yes, we can prove that there is no forced labor in our supply chain. And this is not a theoretical issue. There are, I, I, I don't know, a couple dozen companies that have not been able to get their products away from customs mm. on a so-called WRO or release. Uh, withhold release order. Yeah. Withhold release order. Thank you. <laughs> so this is not uh, hypothetical at all. This is very real. And companies, if they suspect that they might have to face that, need to be able to certify that they don't have any products from the sanctioned companies or the sanctioned industries right now. And the legislation that Anna is speaking about, the Xinjiang Forced Labor Prevention Act, would extend that to all industries. And then you would have to be able to prove that you have no input from anywhere within your supply chain coming from Xinjiang. And I think that that is a, a very hard thing to do. It is interesting to look at the uh, Xinjiang Forced Labor Prevention Act from a WTO perspective. Is it WTO compatible? Can you take a province or a city or a state or a subnational entity within a, a WTO member and say, yeah, free trade with that country, except that province? Uh, it's never been done before. And uh, I think it raises a lot of interesting questions that uh, could enrich lawyers for generations uh, if, if, if this goes through. It's a complicated question. And I would be hopeful uh, for more transparency on the Chinese side as soon as possible. Right. Oh, I was just going to uh, jump in to say, you know, it might be helpful to give like a, a little snapshot of, of the practical challenges involved too, because I think when we say, you know, it's difficult for companies to prove the negative here without a little bit of more specifics, that sounds sort of like a cop-out. But to pick on one industry in particular, the industry that uh, was the initial focus of congressional concern, cotton and apparel and textiles, right? Something like 
60% of all of the cotton in the world or more is grown in Xinjiang. And then even more of the cotton that goes into textiles and apparel that are shipped and sold all around the world is blended in China with other cotton and with other materials that come from elsewhere. So if you are a clothing manufacturer, for example, or, or a retailer, and you have a product that has uh, blended materials and it has long staple cotton, which by the way is, is what is grown in Xinjiang and also what is grown in the United States, and you didn't have any role in your supply chain in the sourcing of the cotton itself, right? You just, you bought the materials for the clothing. You've got to figure out if any cotton fibers in that clothing happen to come from Xinjiang, even if those cotton fibers happen to be identical to American cotton fibers. And there are technologies that uh, might be able to do this in some situations. But for example, there's a technology can, that can look at uh, the cotton fibers and tell you whether or not they uh, originated in China versus the United States or somewhere else, but not not if the fabric is a blended fabric. And the vast majority of fabrics in our clothing are blended. So this really is quite a challenging proposition in many cases. No, thank you for that additional detail. I guess, you know, I've been to a variety of factories and sort of studied supply chains. So I, I sort of intuitively know how difficult that can be beyond just the idea of blended cotton and how much cotton is produced. But you also have many different components of, you know, different types of threads in in shirts and, and you know, so just shirts as an example. So, uh, so, so thank you for that. I, I also just wanted to comment a little bit on Craig's um, sort of, you know, as, as always, sort of wise and big picture commentary. I think, you know, what I took away a couple things. One is that, you know, this idea of actually inspectors getting in there is so essential and so counter normative to the way you know, sort of commerce is conducted. I, so I think that hopefully that will proceed and particularly, you know, given it's connected to these large international organi organizations. And then also something that I had actually not even thought about, but it's very sort of sensible and, and obvious, so to speak, is, you know, the role that the EU is playing on this too. So many of the areas that I research on the environment, you know, the US is actually lagging the EU and sort of is in some ways, you know, sort of skirting by on the on the coattails of, of the EU. And so I think that actually having some, you know, sort of multilateral approach to this, you know, my question was mostly from the US perspective, you know, given that legislation, but, you know, thank you for reminding us that this is something that is a bigger issue and that probably the EU will be focusing on as well. With that said, and sort of as we start to get into the different, you know, things on the Hill, as Anna mentioned, you know, there's a lot of China-focused legislation that is actually in in process. And Anna, you know, if you, you could just give us a general summary of some of those uh, sort of proposed uh, bills and what the progress is on them. Sure. So I, I guess to start with, just a quick uh, overview that helps with um, understanding the scale of uh, the of Congress's attention to China these days. So uh, we are in the tenth month of this Congress, the one hundred seventeenth Congress, and we have something like 310, 315 China-related bills and resolutions that have been proposed just in that time period. Uh, we had 550 or more in the last Congress that were China-specific. Um, and, and that is 
Not a big number when you look at all of the legislation that might be proposed in any given Congress, uh, but it is a really big number for one specific subject, especially a foreign policy one. And something that we like to compare it to, because at least for listeners who are in their 30s and 40s and remember 9-11, or older, obviously, and remember 9-11, that was was a, a time when we really saw Uh, bipartisan effort to address a foreign policy challenge uh, with lots of legislation introduced on the Hill that got buy-in from both Democrats and Republicans. Um, There were 130 bills and resolutions proposed right after 9-11 in that Congress that were focused on counterterrorism and related issues versus the 310-15 bills that we're seeing so far just in this Congress, uh, not even a full year in, that are focused on China. So there really is a dramatic, dramatic and prolific focus on China. Everybody wants to be able to position themselves as uh, someone who is capable of addressing the China challenge in this time where we're in a big strategic shift. And uh, this is a matter that is both bringing the parties together to get stuff done and also increasingly, especially as we head into the midterm elections, dividing them as they compete to position themselves as the better candidate on China issues. And so it's one of those rare moments when a foreign policy issue is actually one of the top line issues in campaigns across the country. And I think that we'll see more and more of that in the coming year. Um, There have been some some big pushes to pass sweeping China legislation already in this Congress uh, in the first half of the year from basically the beginning of this Congress through June. We saw a major effort in the Senate that involved numerous committees uh, introducing bipartisan supported provisions for a China package that uh, Leader Schumer was trying to get across the finish line. And that package is in some ways a vehicle for uh, legislation that would support the semiconductor industry and other high-tech industries in the United States, sort of revitalize them and create conditions for, um, for good jobs to be created in, in sort of 21st century industries uh, here in the United States. But there are lots of other China provisions in this package, and this this bill is called the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. Um, we've been sort of in a stall since June when the Senate passed this package, uh, waiting to see what happened, because, of course, uh, for any legislation to ultimately become law, it's got to pass both houses and it's gotta be identical, um, and then it can reach the president's desk. So um, the House has been putting forward various provisions uh, that are sort of its answer to different pieces of the US uh, Innovation and Competition Act. And a big one that we've been paying attention to is the EGLE Act, which is a product of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. But unlike what's happened in the Senate, it's not bipartisan in terms of the support that it has been able to generate. It is very much just supported by Democrats. um, And that is because uh, it's our understanding that that there was a big push, especially by progressives in the House, to try to tone down some of the inflammatory rhetoric uh, in in the provisions in the Eagle Act, which are an answer to a piece of the Senate's package that came out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, because their, their feeling is, you know, we don't need to be stoking our differences and heading into a situation where we might end up in conflict, whether a cold war or a hot war, when we, we have common problems that we really need to be able to work on together. So let's, you know, 
cut as much of the unnecessary inflammatory rhetoric as we can. Well, Republicans in the House feel differently. Uh, Some of that inflammatory rhetoric surrounds issues like how much the United States is going to support Taiwan. And there are many Republicans who don't think that that is simply rhetoric. They don't think that that is a negotiable issue. They feel that we should change our position on Taiwan and that we should be much more explicitly supportive of Taiwan's independence. And I think that that's going to be a real sticking point in whether or not uh, the two chambers can come together and and finalize a package that they can send to the president's desk. But so far, we, we still have to see the Eagle Act brought to the floor in the House and passed before um, any sort of conference process and negotiation between the Senate and the House can move forward and turn out a package that both sides agree on. And we wouldn't have expected that to happen until maybe next year, except that we have been hearing recently that there is actually a desire by by members of both parties in both chambers to try to get it done this year. So that seems very ambitious, but at the same time, the package, this, the Schumer package, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act also seemed quite ambitious, and we were really surprised by how fast that moved through the Senate. So I, I think, you know, buckle your seatbelt, we may, we may actually see this happen before the end of the year. Very interesting. Yeah. And, and I'd like to actually circle back a little bit um, to, the, to the bipartisan uh, variation that you, that you mentioned a little bit. I mean, when this Congress started out, I mean, it seemed, you know, okay, you know, China is sort of the only thing that the, the Democrats and Republicans can agree on. And as you mentioned, there was sort of, you know, fast movement through the Senate of, um, you know, the, the, the one act, but then it actually ended up stalling, uh, I believe, in the House. And so, you know, and you mentioned as the election season is getting underway, you know, some of these differences are becoming a little bit more articulated as, you know, candidates are putting themselves out there. And you mentioned sort of Taiwan as an issue, maybe toning down some rhetoric um, is an issue. Can you say a little bit more about, you know, where some of the fault lines between the two parties are in, in relation to China? China? I would be happy to. And I, I think Craig may have some some points here, too. I, right. I think the bottom line is this idea that there's a bipartisan consensus on China on the Hill or in Washington has been kind of overplayed because it never really was a consensus on anything but the fact that most people seem to agree that the U.S.-China relationship was uh, the dynamics in it have changed dramatically and we need to reorient our policy. That doesn't mean that they agree on how it should be reoriented, what what the primary issues are, what the solutions are. And there are some fault lines, and I mentioned one of them, but that's not a Democrat-Republican fault line. That's just uh, mm. s- some portions of the Democratic Party, right, and some portions of the Republican Party. Uh, the reality is there are Democrats and Republicans both who, who would like to see a change in our approach to Taiwan, There are Democrats and Republicans both who would like to see investigations into the origins of COVID and some sort of holding China Mm. accountable for that. There are members of both parties who would like to see a much tougher line on forced labor and other human rights issues. But there's not a there's not a majority that feels strongly that is uh, specific to one party or another or that is enough to to truly push a particular policy priority across the finish line right now. And part of that is because while there is this identification of various issues in the relationship that need to be addressed, nobody's got a big overarching vision for what the strategy should be, which is why we all have been waiting with bated breath for what the Biden administration's China strategy will be. 
Great. Well, that brings us back to the to the beginning in some way. So thank you. And and you'd also noted that Craig may have some insight as well into some of the bipartisan variation, or maybe as you mentioned, you know, it might just be pockets of Democrats and or Republicans that are aligned on certain issues. You know, Craig, what's your feeling about this? So I th- I think that the Hill is focused on other issues right now, and. So the probability of having a large piece of legislation like this pass in the near term, to me, seems small. However, I think that the probability of this uh, something like this happening before the midterm elections, where both parties are going to want to prove to their constituents that they're tougher than the next guy, is high. And that sets us up for uh, what might be a, a very interesting spring and summer in 2022. So as uh, we face our the midterms in 2022, China will be facing the 20th Party Congress uh, mm. around the same time, a few weeks apart. Right. And if we have legislation of this nature that the Chinese feel very aggrieved by, both of those political events might be uh, impacted. Uh, something that we would rather keep out of uh, uh, our politics, uh, but which has found a, definitely a very firm way into our politics. And I think that we should be cautious and plan for a, an interesting and unpredictable spring and summer of 2022. Yeah, interesting. Thank you for, for add, adding that on. You know, something else that sort of is, I, I don't know, interesting and unpredictable that connects to your earlier comments was that I, I'd really like to get your opinion on is, you know, China recently applied to join the CPTPP, the the you know, comprehensive and I think um, something, tr- you know, Trans-Pacific par- Partnership, uh, which is, you know, sort of interesting uh, to me because, you know, this uh, this organization or this agreement was set up, I think, under APEC actually in a way to, I don't know, contain China, or, in, or that might be a strong way to put it. And, it, you know, the U.S., as we know, didn't join. And now China is actually applying to join. So would you mind actually talking about that a little bit and how you see this, uh, you know, China interest in joining actually potentially shaping that that agreement? Sure. So it's the Comprehensive and Progressive. Progressive. Okay, uh, thank you. Trans-Pacific Partnership. And we owe uh, Justin Trudeau uh, for (laughs) that progressive there. Uh, Thank you, Justin. China announced that it would join the CPTPP the day after the US, UK, Australia submarine and military uh, procurement uh, deal was announced. And it was clearly announced before they had in- intended. I suspect that they were going to announce it at APEC. But because of the AUKUS a- agreement, it was drawn forward. But the Chinese have been studying this for many years. Uh, as uh, CPTPP, or at that time TPP, was being negotiated, uh, American negotiators uh, briefed uh, Chinese counterparts uh, routinely on the standards and where we were going, because it was, at that time, uh, very much not to keep China out, uh, but to raise standards in a way that China might consider in the future. For about the last year, the Chinese text of the CPTPP has been on the MOFCOM website. Hmm. And that is an announcement to provinces, SOEs, 
everyone that China was interested in joining and get ready because here、mm-hmm. she comes. Okay. And so now that the Chinese have informed the Australians, who are kind of the gatekeepers here this year,、uh, that they wish to join,、uh, a process has been begun. Now it took the Chinese 15 years from the announcement to the joining of the WTO, and in my view, anyway, there's no question that the Chinese are looking at this from at least a six or seven year perspective. Let's remind ourselves it includes labor rights, cross-border data flows, a lot of SOE restraints, a lot of things that will be very difficult for the Chinese to meet, but. It, it would be unwise to think that they're unable to or don't intend to. I think that under the current political environment, it would be difficult. But prime ministers change in Australia and Japan, and the Chinese have plenty of inducements. And as they have said, you know, they will offer "quote unquote" unprecedented access to their market if allowed into CPTPP. As a former trade negotiator, I scratch my head and say, "Well, I want the deal. You know, I want the legal deal, not unprecedented, unarticulated, unprecedented. I want the real thing." And whether or not the Chinese are ready to offer that, let's let's wait and see. But、um, at least in my view, they are sincere, even though they might be sincere over a six, seven year, even longer time period. Then it puts the U.S. in a very defensive position here. For us to now announce that we wish to rejoin is more complicated than it was before the Chinese announcement, for sure. So I look forward to President Biden's remarks、mm-hmm. on November 10, and I look forward to Xi Jinping's remarks on October 10 at APEC because they're both going to raise these、uh, issues. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you, Craig, for that that sort of interesting contextualization of of, of that、uh, issue and describing how it's a you know may potentially a long term play.、Uh, you know, my read of the you know the the press doesn't really focus as much on that. It focuses on you know no way that Australia is going to let them in. So I think this you know given the history of. of China, you know, might be a more nuanced、uh, reading. You know, we're almost out of time. We have about one minute left. I just want to highlight quickly or get a quick reaction、uh, from Craig on one of our audience questions. You know, it, it asks the regard to which you know the U.S. business community has a consensus on playing tough on China, and you know we've seen in relation to the tariffs that they think they actually they damage the U.S. businesses more. So in some ways, against them, you know, complications around the you know Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act. I mean, what's your sense from the companies that you work with as far as you know what's the appropriate level of toughness、uh, on China from the corporate perspective? You know, I think that、uh, you could break that down industry by industry,、right. but you can't speak about it in generalities. Different industries have very different interests. Our consumer goods companies are doing very well, thank you. Agricultural companies are doing very well, thank you very much. Energy companies are doing better than they've ever done before, thank you. That's not true necessarily of other companies. So, so different industries, different companies have quite different interests here, and it's not easy to form a consensus o- o- over these issues. With the exception of, I think, as Anna had said.、Uh, that there should be full enforcement of the Phase One Agreement, and that the two governments should be meeting and. I think that there's a consensus that we should get rid of the tariffs, or close to a consensus、mm-hmm. on that. Maybe not 100 percent, but、uh, close to,、uh, and that、uh, the level of tension should be dramatically reduced between the two countries.、Um, I think that that、uh, that there is a consensus、uh, that far. 
Yeah, well, I think that's a nice sort of to tone to end on. You know, let's actually all work to lessening the tension and moving forward in, in a productive way. So we're a little bit over time. You know, Craig, Anna, as always, so appreciate your sort of thoughtful insights on this complex relationship between the U.S. and China and what it has to say about uh, U.S. and China commercial relations. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on China Corner Office. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.